Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, you know, if you've listened to me uh, any length of time at all, you know that uh, the 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson is my favorite poet. Um, I've long loved her work because of her ability to express deep truths using very limited materials. Emily simply never saw much of the world during her lifetime, yet the very simplicity imposed by the limitations in her experience and education created the power in her imagination. Um, and so here's a little poem from her. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us, we can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it any, Tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. And no, this poem is not about death. It's about something much more subtle. It's how light affects our emotions. Heavenly hurt it gives us because... This sort of hurt is both painful and somehow sublime in its melancholy often. Now, sure, nowadays we can name what Dickinson was talking about, sad, seasonal affective disorder. But it, again, it's much deeper than that. There's another aspect to the sort of hurt that Dickinson's describing. We can find no scar, not a physical one anyway. Instead, the hurt is internal, where the meanings are. But Dickinson isn't merely saying that we have seasonal emotions uh, that no one sees. The hurt is where the meanings are. Emily understood the psychic space where each of us grapples with the symbols and metaphors and stories of our lives, trying both to make sense of what is happening to us right now and also attempting to find the way forward with those symbols and those metaphors and stories that create the meaning in our lives through the narrative. Yeah, as Allison was talking about, it's a way to get through those dragons. As a way of healing and as a way of reaching that most sublime of emotions, I, I would say gratitude, how do we get to a place where we can simply say to life, Thank you. And that's what I want to think about today. Phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, was the god of fear in Greek myth. It's where we get the English word phobia, but Phobos of old wasn't about phobias as we understand them today. Phobos was the child of Ares, god of war, and Aphrodite, god of love. When Phobos passed by, Fear and panic followed in his wake. As a child of both Ares and Aphrodite, 
Phobos created fear and panic in both war and in love. Now, in personifying emotions such as fear helps us to identify those feelings and maybe to locate them in some kind of a narrative frame for ourselves. Emily Dickinson wrestled with a feeling uh, most of us have had uh, some kind of a deep melancholy brought on by looking out the window at a gray winter afternoon. Uh, the, the attempt to name emotions is why people turn to poetry, I think, both readers and writers of poetry like me. Uh, the Polish-American poet Czesław Milos once, once wrote, the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. The purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. Milos doesn't say that the purpose of poetry is to help us get through the difficulty of remaining just one person. He says that poetry exists to remind us of the difficulty of remaining just one person. And that's the difficulty of psychic integration and integrity and that feeling of wholeness that can be very fleeting and very elusive indeed. Well, polling back in uh, March of 2020 in the early days of the pandemic found that one third of Americans at that time were reporting adverse effects on health and well-being. By June, that number was well over 50% and it continues to rise. Social isolation, worry about family and friends, job loss, job insecurity, political and social dislocation and dysfunction, these anxieties manifest themselves in difficulty sleeping, problems with eating, increasing alcohol and substance abuse, and the worsening of uh, what were already chronic conditions in many of us. Over half of the U.S. population and rising. And experts think it's likely to get much worse with the advent of the winter, just as those numbers keep going up now that certain slant of light on winter afternoons is gonna to be tough on a lot of people this particular winter. One of the recent turns in the study of the mind that I find very, very interesting is called affective, A-F-F, affective neuroscience. And that's the study of human emotion, not as a separate and somehow unfortunate feature of being human, but in the context of our evolution inside our bodies and our minds. Uh, in the past, we have focused on the reasoning mind. That's the good thing, right? An evolutionary trait that goes back, oh, you know, 40, 50,000 years when we started uh, uh, decorating the dead and with burial practices and doing some cave painting. But the fact is, and affective neuroscience is finally digging into this, the human brain has been developing a whole lot longer than 50,000 years, something more on the order of 200 million years. This is the time scale of our human emotions. And in that length of time, emotions, feelings have become so integral to our consciousness itself that we can miss what's actually going on. We don't feel it in our bodies and because we aren't really working on it, it's just happening and we can't name it. We don't have words for it. We don't even notice how hard 
were working to remain just one person. And one of the interesting aspects of this research is looking at how we've developed the so-called social technologies to help us regulate our emotions over these millennia. Social technologies, you know, like old government and religion. And we know that the oldest is religion. And the research uh, is clarifying, I think. It's not that we have religious feelings that, uh, you know, the God-shaped hole that religious people sometimes talk about, but rather we have pre-existing feelings that we have come to call religious, feelings that we have come to classify as religious feelings. Again, millennia. From this point of view, religion is a common human project. It's a way for us to take care of ourselves and others by creating structures to regulate our emotions by channeling our communal actions. It would probably be difficult to, uh, you know, convince some Presbyterians in Kansas that uh, going to church falls into the same category as primate social grooming, but affective neuroscience tells us that singing hymns and picking fleas off each other function in much the same way when we look at it in our deepest emotional wiring. Both of them are social technologies to help us with our emotions. Some folks might resist that analogy, but you know, for me, it's very, very clarifying. The religions that human beings have developed over the millennia are mechanisms for regulating our emotions. And we do ourselves a disservice to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And of course, that's why we have such a thing as congregational humanism. Some of you know that I've uh, practiced Buddhist-style meditation for, for decades, back since I was in my 20s, which has been a while. I came to see the benefits of meditation long before the mindfulness thing came along. Uh, but I also understood very early on that the religious trappings of meditation really didn't have anything to do with what meditation was able to do for my mind. And some of you also know that I'm a big fan of uh, Stoicism. Uh, and uh, I'm a completely unimaginative Stoic practitioner because why uh, reinvent a 3,000 year old wheel? No particular reason. Uh, I don't feel any compunction to believe what the Stoics did. That was a long time ago. But Stoicism is a very well-developed mechanism for regulating emotion. We know it works by the simple fact that contemporary cognitive behavioral therapy is modeled after ancient Stoic practices. It, it works, in other words, if you work it. Now, the Stoics use four mental exercises to tune up their emotional states. Um, Premeditation of adversity, contemplation of death, contemplation of the whole, and contemplation of the sage, they called it. Premeditation of adversity, contemplation of death, contemplation of the whole, and contemplation of the sage. And you can look up this up in a quick uh, web search and find all this stuff out. So I want to think about these for a moment, however. Premeditation of adversity. Uh, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about doom scrolling. This is new phenomenon going on. Well, too many of us can't stop reading the news these days doom scrolling as if uh, it's going to be something at the bottom. There's going to be some kind of an answer to all of this or some happy ending, but 
we all know there is no bottom to the news. It just keeps coming. There's always another news flash, doom scrolling. So uh, you think you're thinking of the worst sometimes, huh? I have a feeling that you're not. The Stoics would say, no, you need to really catastrophize uh, to get over this doom scrolling. How about, uh, you know, mm, bloody civil war, hundreds of thousands killed, the breakdown of the infrastructure of the nation leading to wider spread pestilence and famine and, oh, I don't know, invasion by the Chinese, whatever, you, but that's catastrophizing. And compared to that, oh, what's well, a few more weeks of uh, some wrangling over uh, election results. The Stoics say, Go on, go for it. Imagine the worst case scenario, and you know what? You're gonna feel better. Then there's contemplation of death. About the same thing. Sure, the next several weeks are gonna be difficult for everybody here in the United States, but you know what? All of us are gonna be dead soon enough. Momento mori, remember death. Dead people are not worried people. All the sound and fury of pandemic and government and all the rest mean nothing to them. The rest is silence, as Shakespeare said. So enjoy this sound and fury while it lasts. See, if you can find your way to accepting this imperfect world, you can at last say thank you, thank you in gratitude. Then there's the contemplation of the whole. You've heard of the overview effect that astronauts talk about. Imagine a space station view of the Earth. The United States, huh, you can't see anything about lines on that green and blue planet, can you? All those divisions just aren't there. And no, actually you can't see the Great Wall of China from space. The poor human attempts to make a dent on our reality just don't add up to much. So now don't sweat the small stuff. And yes, almost all of the smoke and the dust is small stuff when measured against time and space and reality. And then there's the contemplation of the sage. What would wise people do in this particular event? What would the masters of Stoicism, such as the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, do? Well, actually, we know what he did do. He spent most of his time as the mightiest human being on the planet in military camps, on horseback, fighting people who would eventually overwhelm the Roman Empire anyway. He was doing his duty as he saw it. In the face of one of the longest and the worst plagues in human history, the emperor worked to stop the spread of the disease, and he died of the disease. He did his duty as he saw it. That's what a sage would do. Doing what can be done and not worrying about what can't be done. That's the essence of Stoicism, and it's super simple, and it's the hardest spiritual practice of them all. It's difficult work remaining only one person, not flying into fragments, not doing the foolish and impulsive thing, not doom scrolling. It's tough looking out that window and seeing that certain slant of light.
If it hurts, there's no need to smile. It hurts. That's certain slant of life. Light can be very, very hard on our minds. If it hurts, say so. We human beings have developed structures to combat that tough stuff in these millennia. And most of those structures have something to do with reaching out. Tell somebody, talk to somebody, use the social structures that we have. Your ministers of FUS are here for you. The members are here for you. You have people. You're not alone in the adversity. You're not alone experiencing those human emotions that spread back 200 million years. And yeah, those can be difficult. It can be hard sorting through them, but we have people. We human beings have had a long time to work on getting human consciousness right. And no, we haven't quite done it yet. It's tough, but there's always a way to go for the hope. There's always a way to remain just one person. There's always a way to get back to that gratitude, that thank you. So as a conclusion, uh, I'd like to read a poem. This one is called Thanks. It's written by contemporary American poet W.S. Merwin. He writes, listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we are saying thank you after the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them. We are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the back of cars and elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door in the faces of the officials and the rich and all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying all around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we're saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying, and waving, dark though it is. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.